Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. I'm Will Mallard and today I'm joined by Olivia Cooper. You're very welcome, Olivia. Thank you, Will. So uh, Olivia is uh, the head of, of private wealth and family office uh, within Axiom DWFM Global. So uh, t tell us a bit about the firm firstly and, and where could someone get hold of you online? What would be the number one place the website or your LinkedIn profile um oh right oh okay right hello well um yes well I'm head of private wealth so I'm a lawyer and uh, my law firm is based in central London so we're based in Wigmore Street at the moment so it's just out of outside of Mayfair in the center mm -hmm. of London uh, very easy access to Selfridges as that's next door very bad for the salary uh, so best way to get hold of me, you can join me on, try and join me on LinkedIn. I have, a, I have an enormous amount of contact on LinkedIn. And yes, my message box does get really full up. So I do warn you, you won't get a message uh, replied to in sort of 20 minutes. Uh, but hopefully I will get back to you. Or you can just email me. Uh, my email is available on the website. Uh, so you'll have... I'm happy we'll, we'll, to... put the, we'll put the link in the, uh, yeah. in the comments on the... Uh, on the posting so it's uh, that, that's great so um how, how did you get into this role because that, that, that's a, a big position yes um well i've been a lawyer for more years than i care to remember in fact i think noah was still building his ark when i was when i first got into law it feels that way sometimes uh private wealth is something that's created uh, it's, it's a department that's really come up and leaps and bounds uh since i came into law we used to call it private client I tend to deal with families and uh, persons who are mid to high and to ultra high net worth. So I set up things like family offices, whether they be single family offices or virtual family offices. I structure their investments, how they hold their assets. So that's why I got into it because I actually trained as an economist. And I know that sounds really weird how I gave an economist, being an economist into law, but I'm, I'm very interested in uh, geopolitics and geopolitical risk strategy and this is where I came into private wealth because that's really a key area of investment for private wealth investors is knowing geopolitical absolutely risk like, like knowing so, what's going on out there um, exactly as so you, well as the, the technical details of how, how to put it together exactly so this is where I came into so I decided to become a lawyer and it was uh, certainly an interesting time to go into law uh, and my clients they are come from all around the world. Again, I never judge my clients on their passport. Uh, I've never been one of those people. Um, and one of the things I have a bugbear within the legal services is our compliance is ridiculously onerous. 
um, and incredibly, it's, I mean, we're down to the point now where unless you're actually from a sort of a, uh, a London, uh, you live in London or within the UK, the actual onerous amount of paperwork we have to fill in just to identify you as a client is becoming ridiculous. So I like to call compliance as business prevention officers, which is my favorite term. So I, that, that's one of my bugbears at the moment. But I get into all because I'm I really sure a lot of people can relate uh, uh, in that regard. Um, well, they do because they feel that they're, their, their privacy is being invaded. And, and in fact, I was talking about this. I, in, I'm um, less worried era. about the privacy side and, and more uh, that the hassle involved in doing it each time. Well, yeah, it's also the hassle that then becomes sort of almost uh, the, the problem really came about. And, and sorry to, to, to sort of sure. dovetail into this, but one of the things that is really concerning me, and it's one of the things I've mentioned to the uh, Law Society and globally with all this uh, compliance regulation framework, is that they've made it so heavy on businesses that your compliance officer is absolutely terrified of literally or, or of anything. So mm -hmm. unless it's your basic transaction, the compliance officer is on your neck, whatever you're doing, because they're terrified. You, you does carry a, 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 a you know a custodial sentence, so you can end up in prison, whether here or in the United States. So you know, hey, or in Australia, you know, it's not not the best ideas. So of course, compliance officers then start. They have the putting in place the regulations for the company to reflect supposedly reflect the compliance regulations that we have globally and nationally. But of course, they make it even more difficult for us because they are themselves have been terrified by the legislation. So there's sort of, it's the old bucket of rot, of rot that comes down and hits you on the back of the neck. So unfortunately, this is one of the things that people have to understand when you're dealing with lawyers. We, we, aren't, the pro the, we aren't the problem. We have to deal with that sort of level of legislation and that sort of level of regulant, regulation. So when we ask, you know, for where the funds have come from. And we ask all this sort of in-depth analysis. It's not because we're nosy, it's because we have no choice. <laughs> we get into heaps of trouble if we don't ask for it. Um, and it does mean that, that, that that's actually putting a break on some business transactions, which is very worrying. So, so to become the, the head of private wealth and family office in, a, in an established law firm, what, um, what I'd be really interested in is how you actually got into the law. So you, you I presume you were at university doing economics, which is quite a different field. Uh, I read economics and French at university. Yes, great fun. Um, I spent a year living in Paris, even more fun. Um, I certainly learned to speak French though, uh, mm -hmm. because I managed to rent from a landlady who didn't speak a word of English. Uh, and all my friends were French. And because I read, I decided that rather than go and study French, in, in Paris for my year abroad, which is part of your degree, I went to study economics uh, to carry on my economics uh, because I was reading a double degree. So I, I decided to study that in, in France and I went to a college where it was all French people. And uh, they were great, they were great fun because uh, within the first few days, they actually helped me get settled and so forth. But I must admit the first lecture when all the notation is in French and I'm thinking, oh Lord, what have I let myself in for? <laughs> It was quite funny, but you know, you always have to push yourself. And that's one thing I would recommend to people. Don't settle, push yourself, go for it. And um, don't live to regret something uh, that you never tried it. Uh, I always, and I always try and do this with my youngsters, with, with my youngsters, that sounds really patronizing, but with young 
uh, trainees, I always say, you know, if there's something you're really interested in, that's going to fire your imagination, then go for it, because you'll, you'll do better because it's something you're interested in. I think firing um, your, making sure that your brain is active, kept active, um, which is why I can't stand all this online gaming and computers and so forth, because I think it just leads to dead brain. Um, I think you really have to, to keep your brain active and, and get fired up about something. Uh, and one, one thing I've got to uh, ask you, and I, I wrote this down uh, beforehand, how do you stay so energized? You're, uh, and I've had a few people on the show that uh, are absolute life wiles, and you're absolutely one of those. So... <laughs> Uh, well, uh, well, what's the secret, secret I think the listeners want to know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I stay active. I have a quite healthy lifestyle in terms of what I eat. Um, I cook. I love to cook. So I had an Italian mother, an Italian grandmother, and an English grandmother who were all fantastic cooks. So mm -hmm. I learned to cook from them. So I know how to stock a larder. And um, my husband put on two stone when he married me. So... <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's not very healthy is it but you know i love to cook so how i keep energized is because i keep an interest in what's going on and it, one of the things for example since i was a young student wherever i take a job the first thing i do is join the local library because i don't want to be bogged down in just my work um, and that's very common with, with young people they get so focused on just what their job is that they forget the world that exists around them that there's other things going on and that's very dangerous so I used to, for example, go to the library and just pick up a book on whatever, Greek pottery or you know, excavations happening in, in God knows where. But just to keep my mind going and ticking over, pick up the newspapers, find out what's going on, because that's where you keep in touch with sort of not just the local populace, but the global populace. And you can then start to foresee trends. You start to pick up on where things are going, what, what could be a potential problem. And, and that, I, I can see how, how, as I said earlier, that that's quite a valuable thing for a prospective client. Um, but I, I also suspect it's quite an interesting thing uh, in that you're, uh, you, you've got a, a range of views which, which are, uh, are formed based on being widely read, learning and ongoing engagement with lots of different stuff. Well, what, what, what have it. you got on at the moment? Just to uh, get, give listeners a little flavour. Um, right. Oh, God. The one, uh, the one so minute vision. <laughs> I, I, I've got a lot of projects on and some of them are probably, uh, well, a lot of them are very highly confidential. So yes. I can't tell uh, what my clients are doing uh, because I wouldn't really like it to be splashed, uh, you know, because it's course, quite highly confidential. But at the moment, a lot of um, I'm looking at a waste to energy investment and waste to energy, uh, new technology, which is truly new technology, which most important of all, will provide a true solution. And um, I'll talk a bit more about that, uh, where we're going with investments, uh, with uh, family offices, uh, looking in the true sustainability a bit later on. But definitely I've got a huge waste of energy project going on. Uh, in, we've got a lot of hospitality, relocation, and basic turnover of hospitality assets, very popular at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, we're looking at uh, in the US, we're, we are looking at diversification in portfolio investments. So that's looking at things. They're going into a more, uh, uh, it's very hard for the US. Uh, people think of the US as one country, but it isn't. It's almost like 52 little countries. So mm -hmm. you've got the, you know, Texas is almost a, you know, it's a country in itself. So it's completely different to my clients in New York. Well, well, when you actually get into it, it's like five countries. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, it's not. Every state is its own little country, in a way. And yeah, um, no, that's what I mean. That, that, like te Texas yeah. is uh, is split up into, uh, and they're completely different. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like West London and East London, for example. Well, I think it's even more different because, yeah, okay, yeah, maybe people would say that West London and East London were completely different, but if you go to Texas, um, they are a, a country, and it's a country in itself, and. It, what's really interesting is it, they're not small-minded. People think it's just because they're small-minded because they think of Texas as a state and automatically, if you're a European, you think of a state being something small, you know, mm -hmm. like the Vatican state is something mm -hmm. small. Whereas Texas is you've, a you've got of a European fly country. It, basically. <laughs> you've got, exactly. And people <laughs> don't realize that. So when but Texas, who for family offices, especially in the United States, and I'm just using Texas, but it's right across the United States, Family offices tend to be very, um, the, the majority of, of US family offices still tend to be very centric on what, they're, what they're, they made their money in. So you can find 60, 70, 80% of their portfolio is still invested in what they've made their money, the family made their money in. So, and also very region specific. So they may not even, if they're Texan, they may not even invest outside of Texas. Mm -hmm. So let alone the rest of the US, let alone the rest of the world. But that's changing. So they are learning about diversification. So we're looking at um, a number of US projects that are coming online uh, and they are investing into the UK very heavily. Uh, so um, again, those are projects both in real estate, um, in sustainability real estate, uh, in various energy projects. So it's quite, it's very diverse what we're looking uh, and at. And as, um, as a quick tip for, for listeners, um, your you're involved uh, particularly in the, the structuring side of things. So um, how uh, how things are set up on the way in, on the way through, on the way out has enormous bearings on what what, what, what is it actually worth to the people uh, putting the money in and, and their partners. Now, what, what are the key principles that you, you know, where do you come at it from? Well, one of the things what you have to remember is my clients are, family offices. So a family office is this essentially the wealth of one family. And they're investing for me short, medium, long term. So we're looking at succession planning for generations we'll never live to see. So it has, you have to understand the timeline we're investing on. So where we come at it from is normally right from the, the, from the actual family's point of view. What are they looking at? What are their interests? What are they particularly keen on what is their family ethos and from there we we, we form uh we, we understand where are they based where is their main base where are we holding these assets and it depends what they're looking at to in, to invest in because it could be in funds it could be in real estate it could be a direct investment into a project that will have a direct impact on how we we advise them how to hold that asset within the family office structure and which part of the family office handles the investment? It all because they're not. It's not just sort of one person. It's it's a it's a corporate structure that's doing the work. Uh, so we have to make sure, and then we have to take that up to the level of the family, um, as how they are benefiting and how it fits in with their ethos, uh, because the family offices have their own regulations within it, uh, which is normally a code of practice, if you like, uh, which we have to follow. So if the project doesn't fit that, then we can't offer it to that family office as a potential investment. And, and, and what, would be, um, what, what would be something that is quite important to you in terms of the relationships that you're, you're building with these, these clients? 
Um, not not limiting it to family offices, uh, but no, no. My clients, um, my clients are very important to me. So I build a relationship that's going a rapport that's going to last an awful long time. Um, well, hopefully during my lifetime and then onwards. So they, I, so I, it's multiple generations. I, I'm not just talking to parents or grandparents. I'm also having to deal with children, uh, youngsters, children, young people coming into the marketplace. So I'm dealing with the entire family from eldest to youngest. Uh, so I have to build a rapport with all of them and you have to gain their trust. So when they come to you with something that you, they have to know that they can trust you. One, that you won't open your mouth and talk to lots of people about it. Two, that you will give them the best advice you possibly can. And if you, most important of all, if you're not sure, you will find the right advice for them because you will go out and get the right advisor. That's very important. An awful lot of people in my profession can be very arrogant and think they know it all. I don't believe that I know it all. I know for a fact I don't know it all. So if I'm not sure of something, I will give a general opinion and say, well, hey, we need to go and get some deep down feedback on this. And I know and I will find the right advisor for them. So it's that building that trust so that whatever they whatever problems they have or whatever they want to do, I'm the first person they contact. And I hope and hopefully I always will be because sometimes they can go off and do very silly things and then I have to get them out, dig them out of the hole. <laughs> and, and what's the, uh, in any market at any given time, there's a, there's typically a, a, a not at equilibrium. There's a, a shortage of either money or, or deal flow. Um, with your clients, what, what's the, what's the perception out there? Are they, are they struggling to place money? Um, um, no, actually, uh, family offices in general, um, in the last few years, we've seen them be very cash heavy. Uh, going into the current environment, we have an environment that is potentially where we're, where we're seeing uh, um, inflationary uh, worries coming. Uh, it's not right to be cash heavy. So there's a lot of opportunities out there. And perfectly fine. I mean, even if you, I don't know if you read the Mike Frank, uh, the latest Mike Frank Wealth Report, uh, you know, 90% of their people questioned in their family, those are family offices, 90% of them questioned were actually very upbeat about there's plenty of investment opportunity out there. Yes, it has been difficult sometimes to finally square the circle, as it were, to get them to invest because to let them go, let go of that cash is quite hard sometimes because they obviously, especially after the pandemic, and during the pandemic, there was that panic, you know, we have to hold on to some cash in case the whole world goes to, to, to wherever, to hell in a wheelbarrow, uh, I've got my pot of cash. It, there is that natural, it, natural, and that's the same in all of us. You know, it's the reason why my grandmother used to sew coins into the curtains, because in case of, you know, the world mm -hmm. comes to an end, you know, you pull the coins out of the bottom of the curtain, you've got something to hold on to. It's that, it's that wish. So, Going forward, I'm seeing a very positive vibe. It, we are seeing now very, a much more move to, yes, we need to invest, we, 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 but we're investing for different times as well. We're investing for a much longer period of time now. Uh, we're not, no longer just the sort of five-year entrance to exit strategy. Uh, we're also seeing investor investing for where we're going to hold that investment for multiple generations. So it's, it's a very exciting time to be in private wealth. And that's really not just because of the pandemic, but because of the whole green issue, greenwashing, sustainability. It's enlivened the whole marketplace now. And it's, it's actually, it's quite an interesting time to be in private wealth at the moment, certainly. And who, who are your key influences at the moment? 
who do you follow? What, what, what's, who do you read? What, what, what's the... Um, at the moment, I would suggest uh, one of the most interesting, I mean, the, the book itself, the first book they wrote, which was The Transhuman Code, that was Carlos Moreira and David Ferguson. Uh, that I would say is uh, that I mean that came out in 2019, was it? It was first published or 2018? I can't remember. But it caused it caused certainly a stir, and I would highly recommend anyone who hasn't read it to read it, because it is a fantastic book. And I was very lucky to meet up with Carlos and David in at the Vatican uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were when they launched the next stage, which is the Code to the Metaverse. And I think it's uh, what they're trying to do. Uh, is, a, is a whole idea of looking at technology from a humanitarian side, from making sure that we don't take the humanitarian side out of technolo technological advancement. Mm -hmm. So it's not AI for AI's sake, it's more technological advancement, continuing the human morals, uh, mm -hmm. containing the human moral code. Uh, and I think that actually, if you read that book, and, and uh, I was really heartened by the actual... Uh, when I went to the launch of the uh, code of the metaverse, I was really heightened to hear that there are people who are fighting for this because it's not just um, some sort of uh, boring old academics uh, and some sort of, you know, people think of us as being sort of, uh, the people who talk about humanitarian needs as these sort of, either with a very sort of trendy people or with a sort of background in, in sort of with an awful woolly jumpers. No, these are real financiers. These are people who know what they're talking about. And they're actually saying that it, this is something that we need to be looking at and we need to be addressing. And they do it in a very practical, very down-to-earth way. So I would definitely say, go and read the book because that's one of my top keys at the moment. And within your world, uh, your personal world, uh, that this rise of technology, I, I, I'm very skeptical that it's actually making things substantially better. And I see this across all, all fields like construction, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. they, they put the Empire State Building up in 1931 in 13 months from breaking ground to people walking in the door to work. Okay, yes. but they, they leased offices and people were in there but, and admittedly they didn't fill the, uh, the building, uh, but 13 months. Now, there were no laser levels, there was no computer spreadsheets, there was no... Uh, there was no, uh, I, I suppose, computers at all involved, um, mm -hmm. and, and they managed to get it up. And they, they broke uh, all the safety records at, at, at that time. It was one of the safest large projects in history at the time. Um, so it wasn't, you know, done at a, uh, like a tremendous human price. Uh, but if you tried to build something like that today, you'd be seven years in planning. You'd be yes. uh, in legals at every stage of it that, that would just suck yes. the life out of you. The actual building well, contracts. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what, what's that. your view uh, on technology? And is it actually doing what it's supposed to? No, or is it it's simple answer, no. Um, uh, that's why I, I said go and read uh, Carlos and, and David's book because it's really, uh, eye-opening. We'll put that in the, the, the notes uh, or in yes. the comments uh, section well, please on, do. on uh, um, the posting. Because they're, they're really, uh, with the Humanity H2 project, there I'll give you the link for that. It's really important. But technology, yes. There have been, I mean, the trouble with what we're seeing nowadays is I think we're having, uh, as you said, a, a, a 
a problem where we're, technology is sort of almost overtaking us. Mm -hmm. And we are putting in an awful lot of regulations in order to almost try, try and keep up with it. Uh, instead of what we should be looking at is how, we're, and that's putting a break on our, on our uh, true entrepreneurship, if you mm -hmm. like. Um, also, the thing that when it comes to technology, we are looking at a situation where you're, you're at the moment, people expect the result within seconds because they're so used to picking up a mobile phone, clicking a button and, and they're through to somebody else. Or, mm -hmm. you know, you know, they can do this or you can take a photo and send it halfway around the world and they, 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 whatever. They expect it to be done, especially the younger generations, you know, the X, Y, Z, they, they, they are used to this very sort of snap technology. Whereas if you look at real technological advancement, it happens over a number of years. It doesn't happen over a number of hours or days. So, I mean, take the motor car. If you look at what the motor car in 1898, when you see the first horseless carriage, compare it to what you're driving now, say in a, uh, an Aston Martin Valkyrie, the, the two don't even look as though they come from mm -hmm. the same planet. This is what I'm saying. But look at the development, the development of the technology. That is, has taken years to get to there. Now, what we're telling ourselves is that we can do all of that technological advancement in the space of a couple of hours, basically, thanks to the fabulous computers that have been built and so forth. I don't believe a computer will ever represent a human being completely. I, will, I, I cannot believe that one because I have a, I, I'm a Christian, so I have a Christian faith. I will never believe that a computer will take over a human being. Uh, you can never, a computer can't for a start, kind of has no empathy. And that's one of the most wonderful things that we have as human beings, this, the ability to empathize. Uh, so what, what we need to get back to is an idea of encouraging entrepreneurship. And that goes right back to the schools as well. I think our education system as well is failing us because we've become so uh, exam-led. We've, we've become so also, so um, not, Book, le book learned without, without actually encouraging learning. Um, just to go back to my childhood, I came from parents who were very complete academics, real intellectuals. I was surrounded by books and newspapers all my childhood. Uh, and I was always encouraged to pick up a book, to read, to find out whatever I wanted, to, to learn about something. If I just had a sudden thought, you know, oh, I've read in, I don't know, Charles Dickens is talking about this. Oh, let me go and research it. You know, I had the full series of Encyclopedia Britannica. There was always a the keen idea to learn. And I think not learning for learning's sake, but to encourage yourself to develop as a person. I think that's lacking in our education system. It's very driven by almost what I call the sort of binary system, which is very computerized, you know, on or off. You know, this is what you're learning in this lesson. This is what you're learning in this lesson. And you know, I, I remember when children you know, have this question they ask, well, is it going to be on the exam? If, as though, if it's not going to be in the exam, it's not worth learning. You know, mm. it's just that sort of idea. So I think that's where our problem is coming. We have to get back. We've become too computerized. Mm -hmm. Our own selves, we become computerized. And we have, to, we have to remember that we are not computers ourselves. Uh, we are human beings. And we have multiple levels that we can think on. And we need to get back to that. Because the, the dynamicism that we've seen in the Industrial Revolution era, and you know, as you put it, when we built the Empire State Building, that dynamism, we need to get it back. And it's not just about making the latest technology in terms of uh, what is the latest computer gizmo that can be done. It's got to be more than that. 
we have to have foresight of what's going to make it better for all all humanity so are we going to have the best uh how are we going to sell solve problems like uh water shortage how are we going to solve it at the moment we just have people you know fear goblins telling us oh the world's going to end tomorrow and oh, <laughs> la, la. no let's have a bit more concise thinking let's have a bit more brain power put towards it and have some real uh flair entrepreneurial flair and what we're going to do what we're going to create and I, I do think that's lacking and i think that's lacking in younger generations because we've allowed them to become so binary focused off or on that's mm. my opinion and uh, bringing back um since we are on my property world uh, i'd like three property stories from you so your own mm. personal one within your life um, mm -hmm. the second um the the most interesting property deal that you've been involved with with a client mm -hmm. you don't have to name the client or the uh the, the property. The actual, yeah yeah um but but the structure of it in particular mm -hmm. and uh what you think the 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 best uh property strategy for uh someone who is sitting on say 10 million in cash today right okay any particular area of the globe we have to uh, stick we'll, to we'll, we'll keep it in the uk uh okay. yeah all right okay my personal property story um oh gosh I've, I've been involved with so many different properties uh around the world uh i would say that my favorite property uh actually i think this for me my favorite property is my 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 own home that i where i grew up and I think it's, uh, I grew up in a very simple, very simple house, it wasn't a grand house, uh, but it was my home. Uh, my parents created the most loving, wonderful home. And I think that's very key to uh, children's upbringing. They need a solid home. And when we sold it, because my parents had died, I cried. I actually cried for days. Now you would, if you looked at this house, you would think, mm. who cries over that? You know, this is not- So it wasn't the house, house, it was the memories. It's not that, it's just the, the building itself created a, a sort of, it was part of my, part of my, my psyche. It was, it was your identity, your. Exactly. And, you know, I, I can't go back. I still can't walk down the street because I know that change, the people who bought it have made changes to it. And it's like, they, they're destroying my parents' property. That's a ridiculous thing. So I would say that property can have and I think maybe that's maybe a very English thing. I don't know, but I'm sure that other people around the world have felt that as well. But it's certainly it can have. I don't realize. I don't think people realize how much a, a family home can enter into you. It becomes part of you. Uh, and I didn't want to sell it. It was actually my elder sister who said, "No, Olivia, you've got. We've got to sell it because otherwise you'll turn it into a mausoleum." You know, that's the sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. she was absolutely right. She was absolutely right on that. But I still cry now thinking about it. So I'm just that home was just home for so many years and, and you love it um i would say if you get to that situation uh now obviously i don't have children at this point so uh i i don't have anyone to leave it to but certainly succession planning comes in at that point and and so, some properties can enter into a family psyche and become part of their identity and it's important to keep them in that case and and hand them down through the generations so i would say that's one point uh definitely don't let go of family homes because it can have a really nasty effect on people. Mm -hmm. uh, now, what was it? A big property transaction that I've been involved on. 
uh, an exciting property transaction. Oh, um, I have weird, the most weird things I have people asking me for when uh, they're looking for particular properties. And that's always makes me uh, quite, a, quite amazed as to what people are looking for, uh, whether it's an investment property or it's a property they're actually gonna use themselves. There's a big difference because the checklist of what they're looking for when it's their own property is something incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have had somebody who wants somebody because they are uh, racing falcons. So mm-hmm. they want to have enough land. Uh, it's got to be in a certain zone in the UK. It's got to be up in Northumberland. So they have access to uh, areas where they can race their falcons and, and train mm-hmm. falcons, which is, is, is the word. I mean, I love uh, falconry. It's, uh, it's in, in the Middle East, it's huge in the Middle East. It's much bigger than it is in Europe. But falconry is one of the oldest sports known to be a really ancient sport. I mean, you mm-hmm. can see falconry painted on the tombs or, or, or in ancient Egypt. So it, it's quite, it was quite amazing when you get asked, oh, and the most important concern is that he has to have enough land for his falcons. And uh, if you've ever flown back from the Middle East with, uh, well, flown back to the Middle East, um, after uh, I've been actually on a plane where the front seats, the so-called first class, the seats are, are removed and you have pillars put in, which are the, the, the little stands, and, and the falcons are sitting on these stands. Yeah. So yeah, they, they're not- so ser- they're Serious food uh, people. <laughs> that was one of my favorite transactions, finding that property. <laughs> that was, uh, and, I, and they're, they're incredible. If anybody wants to come to the British Championships, they're run by Valley. I would highly recommend it as a day out because you have, you have to see these birds in operation. They are incredible. We think that we are, and this is going back to our technology. We think we're so technologically, technologically advanced. Have you ever seen a falcon climb and dive? The speed it can do and the way it maneuvers is just incredible. No plane on earth can do that. No fighter plane on earth can do that the way a falcon does it. So it's, it's incredible to see that. And, Nature once again tops us every time. So it keeps a lid on us as I say, yeah, you are just man. Just remember that there is a superior being. <laughs> but obviously, I believe there is. Um, so that was one of my most interesting property transactions, uh, trying to find that property. Uh, again, rural property has been very, very popular. No, no doubt because of the pandemic, rural property has been very popular. And we've seen prices increase. Interestingly, now we're seeing the converse, which is hilarious. When people have moved out to the countryside and they're not real country people mm-hmm. and they can't cope and suddenly now they're all wanting to move back into town <laughs> so we're seeing prices increasing again back in the cities so it's quite it's, it's quite interesting um and what was the third one you wanted uh i can't remember what was the third thing you asked me so so, so what uh if someone had 10 million uh we'll say oh, dollars wait, or where, pounds, where pounds. yep uh what, what, what uh, uh and, and let, let's assume that income is a priority Income is a priority. Commercial real estate is still one of, I mean, if you're going into real estate, commercial real estate in central London is still going to hold, it's holding its value. Um, certainly because what's happened over, uh, over the pandemic, prior to the pandemic, you saw real estate was, commercial real estate in, in London was, was at an all-time high. It was, it, it was doing very well in, in most locations, I hasten to add. I'm talking in generalities here. Mm-hmm. But we, because we were crushing more and more people into an office, so the space that you were giving to every one person in an office was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> um, 
obviously pandemic has arrived. Uh, we've been through the pandemic. People are coming back into the office. Uh, and not surprisingly, whatever people say about homework and so forth, a great deal of people want to be back in the office because they just want to have the interaction of human beings again. So what we're seeing is that the offices that can provide a healthy environment, mm -hmm. those rental incomes are just going up, uh, up and up and up and up and up. So it, it, again, it's a tale of two cities. Uh, the right rental, the right uh, real estate, commercial real estate in London will command a good. Uh, a good and price. I, I think, um, in terms of the um, the companies which lease these these properties, uh, the smart ones realise that the uh, the environment they're creating for their staff has an enormous impact on their their productivity, on the, productivity. The, the retention Absolutely. levels, the positioning. Uh, if it's easy for people to get to. Uh, if there's mm. enough around it um, that they can they can do stuff, that it's mm. an environment that they're, they're quite happy remaining in for uh, the duration of their working day. And ideally that they're, they're in early and they're out late and, um, and, and that they, they yeah. enjoy the physical environment, that it's nicer than their own home. Well, I um, can say from my, my, our own experience uh, with our junior staff, um, they were really happy to be back in the office mm. uh, from lockdown. We, were, we, we actually were open all through lockdown, but mm -hmm. we rotated staff. Obviously, only a few members of staff were allowed into the office. Mm -hmm. um, but now we're all back. The junior staff are, are just so happy because there's interaction. They have interaction not only with their fellow junior staff, but also senior staff. So if they get stuck on something, they don't have to email or jump on Zoom or something like that. They can actually just, oh, hey, she's just there at her desk. Go and talk mm -hmm. to her you know, or him. Uh, so it's easy much. And they really appreciate that. They also appreciate you know, the interaction we have. I mean, we have uh, pizzas on Thursday night if we work mm -hmm. late. You know, we get late night pizza in or might be able to a couple of bottles of wines being up, wine being open, uh, or we all go off to a bar together. You know, it's that interaction they missed. They really yeah, missed. It's uh, life in a city. Yeah. And it, what we're finding is, for an, another funny, uh, where I, I'm actually down in, in, in Surrey, so this is where I live uh, at the moment, but we're moving even further out into the rural domain. Uh, but here, we don't have delivery. And a couple of rental properties, we had people who came basically escaping COVID, if you like. So mm -hmm. they wanted more space, they didn't want it, and they lived very much in a small place in uh, Chelsea. And they arrived here, and the first thing they said was, you, you don't have Deliveroo. And so they so, 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 how do you survive? You know, oh my God, this is the end of the world. It was quite hilarious um, to see how, 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 how really dependent on this sort of very quick turnover, you know, click your fingers and you just go online as an app and, and suddenly everything's delivered to you. And that, that, that's really, like really interesting. Um, it, like in a, if you went back maybe 150 years, uh, pre uh, the, the tube network being in place in, in large mm -hmm. cities, uh, it wasn't a done thing to, to go out to dinner. Like, like people just did no. not do that. No. Uh, you'd have private parties. People would have no. you know, larger dining rooms if they were well off enough to to do that and and then uh, I, I think there was like some uh, parallel things started happening where uh, there was a growth of international hotels so um, well, the Ritz which, which had the had the restaurants was, had the and it yes. became a done thing and the accessibility of, uh, by public transport which wasn't there up until the the mid to late 1800s 
this is it. This and is then, the and the what a city is today is kind of, um, it's anything and everything, and it's on your doorstep, it's at your fingertips, it's now. Exactly, uh, exactly. It's, it's choice space, and and I think I that, that for, for my mind, uh, like I'm a city person, if you haven't, haven't guessed, but... <laughs> Um, I uh, I enjoy the choice, and mm -hmm. uh, while well, yes, I like peace and quiet, and, and I, I get it that, that uh, for some people it's a good choice to be uh, in the countryside and and to have more space. Uh, but for my mind, uh, it's interaction with people. It's the the ability to uh, to go out to be excited to. Um, to be energized by the, 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 the groundswell of people as you walk down the street. Well, Will, I know Greta, Greta Thunberg will absolutely hate me for this, but I was actually celebrating when after COVID, we were back in London, I was back in London and I was on Piccadilly and there was a traffic jam again. And I thought, yes, you know, we're all alive, we're back. Oh, this is wonderful. I can smell the fumes. And, you know, it's just, it was just so wonderful because there was traffic, it was taxis beeping and you know, people milling around and tourists were coming back. And, and it was just so wonderful. And the Ritz reopened mm -hmm. and it was just like life's back again. And I missed that. I really did. I missed that. And I mean, because I, I do both. I love the countryside and I, and, and I, love, I love being in London as well. So... I, I, I was really grateful to see, you know, traffic back on the streets. Mm -hmm. uh, and no matter what people say, it's a great thing to see. Now I'm not so keen because, you know, it means it takes longer for me to get anywhere. Uh, but it, it was just that interaction of people. It's certainly, I think we've seen, it is quite funny, the amount of instructions I'm getting of people relocating back mm -hmm. uh, into town or at least into commutable distance to town. Mm -hmm. So Chelsea, which is considered out of town for most mm. people. Uh, which is ridiculous, I know, but they're commuting back in. So this is, so it's quite interesting that that sort of, uh, whereas during the COVID pandemic, we saw uh, an awful lot of people uh, move. And again, that's very geographically specific, I should add, uh, because in Asia, we never saw that change. Um, Asia is still one of the places where, uh, I think it had many folks, like 56% of, of, of those questions looking to move uh, all want to move into an urban environment because urban dwelling is considered the thing mm -hmm. to have and uh, mm -hmm. so it's still very much the case there that never changed so mm -hmm. again it, you have to think about where you're where you're talking about because geographically i mean mm -hmm. if you're looking at the uk certainly everybody wants to move out um, and they want more space both indoor and outdoor space mm -hmm. because when you're in lockdown and you've got a fantastic mayfair penthouse it, it's great but if you've only got a balcony and you, you can't walk outside and you people got a bit frustrated mm -hmm. so that's that's where people but now you're seeing they're all moving back in and they all want the boat mayfair pen, penthouse again so it's quite it's quite interesting because they want to be able to go to a nightclub they want to be able to go to annabelle's and not have to think damn it i'm going to have to spend an enormous amount of money to get an uber to take me all the way back to wherever i am back in sirencester so you know this is this is the, this is the the way we're looking people are looking mm -hmm. at it now so they miss especially if you've got multiple generations living together, it's very difficult because the younger generation certainly miss the interaction they want to have in the city. And so they want to be back in town. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting there. 
but that's what I've seen. The, the now, now, uh, Olivia, there's, uh, there's a number of topics that I'd like to uh, get you back on the podcast to talk about. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely do that uh, with your permission. Um, sure, absolutely. But, but what I'd like to do now is, is thank you for, for coming on. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up. Um, so I'm Will Mallard. This is My Property World. And Olivia Cooper, you're very welcome. Thank you, Will. Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile.